It is Thursday, the 13th of April. In this episode of Going Viral, Dr. Gary Groman suggests that there are too many sources of COVID vaccination information and probably way too much commentary at the moment. Is it getting confusing? Not according to Dr. Gary Groman. He will direct you to the WHO and CDC sites and suggest you stick with them. He will discuss if bivalent vaccines and combined vaccines are what they're cracked up to be and touch upon the origin of COVID-19. He also poses the question, do rapid antigen tests drive up transmission rates? The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Dr. Groman, we've had you many times on this podcast series. Tell us about yourself. Thank you again, David, for having me on your program. I'm a consulting virologist. I am a director of the Immunisation Coalition here in Australia, which, as you know, promotes um, vaccination in general. I'm also a uh, consultant to the World Health Organization from time to time uh, on various projects, including uh, those to do with flu, COVID and the SAGE group. And I'm an adjunct, I have an adjunct appointment at the University of Sydney as well, which is a pro bono thing that I like to do and teach uh, virology to med and vet and science students. Gary, let's just start with what WHO has been saying lately. So for those who do not know, maybe you can tell us what they're saying, and then I'd like to hear your comments. So SAGE, which is the Special Advisory Group of Experts that advises the Director General at WHO, and is an independent committee drawn from various scientists and medical practitioners around the world, including epidemiologists and immunologists, they have released a bombshell recently in the sense that they have now said that if you're healthy, if you're under 65, if you're not pregnant, then there's actually no need to get the vaccine. There's no urgency anymore, as there was a couple of years ago when we didn't know that much about the virus and the virus was, in fact, a lot more virulent because we were dealing with alpha, beta and later delta, all gamma in South America. But now, of course, we're dealing with Omicron, which is much milder in terms of severity. There are fewer hospitalizations and deaths naturally. Uh, And even the overall death rate, I was looking up the figures this morning, David, had reported 760 million cases approximately, and undoubtedly that number is higher. Yep. The number of deaths is around 7 million, which mm-hmm. is less than 1%. And in fact, if that 760 million is higher, it's going to be less than probably 0.4%. So I think we are dealing with, yes, uh, a, a pandemic that was very severe in the beginning, mm-hmm. but now things have changed. We have a very low death rate. Flu has a higher one, by the way. A number of other viruses have a, high, a much higher death rate in terms of their pandemic potential. Uh, than COVID has. So now I think the pressure's off. SAGE has now said, I believe quite correctly, quite sensibly, that there's no urgency to get this vaccine. It's available if you want it, of course. You can take it. You can vaccinate your children if you like. You can get yourself vaccinated. It's entirely your choice. But there's certainly no recommendation from the WHO. Uh, and even ATAGI is also not recommending it for people that are healthy unless pregnant, it is recommended uh, during pregnancy to protect the mother and the fetus. But even a target just says consider 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're unwell, if you're immunocompromised in some way, uh, have any other underlying health condition or multiple underlying health conditions, or you're around about 65 and immunosenescence is starting, then obviously it makes sense to get the vaccine and to protect yourself. And the suggestion now is from most virologists, every six months, this whole thing of four months, five months, three months, uh, being concerned about the drop of antibody, frankly, immunogenicity is not everything. Uh, And um, to rely entirely on immunogenicity, to make a decision like that when you get vaccinated, is really quite foolish in my view. Six months would make sense. You could immunise as we do in Australia around about April together with influenza, and then again in September. This will give you protection, for, depending on the person, of somewhere between four and six months or possibly longer. Uh, and then if you wanted to travel during those times, then you would also have some protection, at least from hospitalisation and death. We can't say it stops severe disease, but we can say it has a very good efficacy against hospitalisation and death. So WHO have made that great statement. I think it's fantastic because as a virologist, as someone into vaccines, you vaccinate the group that has the highest burden of disease, Mm -hmm. has the highest burden of disease. If you take all the fear out and all the panic that we started with, the highest burden of disease hasn't changed. I feel like saying hello. Mm. <laughs> Is anybody listening? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Some years ago, the highest burden of disease, taking away all the fear, is in those over 65 and those with several underlying health conditions. Mm-hmm. That's where the burden of disease is. That's where the vaccines and the antivirals have to go. To decide to vaccinate the whole population, as we did, was important at the time because Delta uh, in particular, was much more severe than Omicron. But now the virus has changed. So the whole scene has changed. And as a virologist, I'm not surprised. I think I said on your program at the very beginning uh, that uh, there would be four to five waves. And they would become less in severity as time went on. There would be fewer hospitalizations and deaths as time went on because that is simply the nature of zoonotic infections in humans. And as the virus mutates, together with us becoming Uh, more robust in terms of our immune response. This virus won't disappear, but it will become less relevant, like the common cold is less relevant. And I'm still predicting and hoping in brackets that uh, the virus will indeed keep going down that track, not back mutate in some weird way, which is always possible, but unlikely. We don't see that at all, really. Uh, It's not like flu where it's going to reassort yet again with another animal virus. This is a very unique jump. Uh, from animal to human. We can speculate about origin later, but it's gone from animal to human. Clearly, bats are involved. Clearly, uh, raccoon dogs have now been identified by the WHO, so that's another bombshell from them. It clearly shows a spillover theory rather than the lab leak theory has far more traction. Uh, So we're finally getting to the point, okay, we've got a virus from bats. It's gone to another animal. Then it's gone to humans, and we can speculate as much as we like about that, but it's here. Uh, it's gone through several very important iterations. We call them Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Omicron, and there have been others uh, that have come and gone within weeks, I might add, like Epsilon, for, for example. Uh, and there have been constant drift mutations. They haven't. There's been no shift in that the virus Omicron has recombined with another bat virus like flu might. We're always concerned about flu viruses recombining 
coming into humans recombining again. That's the big danger of flu, uh, particularly bird flu and influenza from pigs. So we've seen this again and again, as we all know, from bird to pig to human with these reassortants. And then after that, we see drift. Mm-hmm. And the drift uh, always tends towards less mutation until there's either a major mutation or there's a shift. And we're seeing something very similar with corona. I think we should worry much less about corona, focus on the people with the burden of disease, uh, offer them the vaccine. Anybody, of course, can take the vaccine that's out there. And we have a variety to take ostensibly. Um, AstraZeneca is now gone, as you know. So um, mRNA vaccines are available from two companies and a protein vaccine is available from one company at this stage. Mm. Uh, so I think that's where we sit with WHO. And I think the SAGE advice is indeed SAGE. And I'm I, I'm looking forward to more advice from SAGE. And I do have a conflict of interest in the sense that I do give advice to a number of subcommittees of SAGE, but I hasten to add, I'm not on SAGE or influence the committee in any way. I just provide written advice when asked. And I'm pleased to see them moving finally in this direction. And I'm hoping that um, vaccines can go to where they're really needed for the where the burden of disease is, whether it's in Australia or Europe or developing countries or China, wherever it might be. We need to get vaccines to the right people and not the whole population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we need now to rely on the fact that Omicron is changing. Um, most of us have, in fact, had two to three courses of vaccine. I think 90-something percent for two courses and 70-something for the three courses. And many people have had a booster, but that's not been accept- accepted well by the community. That's another flag uh, for us all as infectious disease people to look at, because if the community is not accepting it, if the community smells a rat, in inverted commas, or feels that it isn't entirely kosher, then they won't take it. We call it the pub test colloquially in Australia. And uh, they don't want to take a vaccine and then be sick for five days. Well, they don't want to take a vaccine and they don't know the long-term outcome. This is all right because we're giving vaccines to healthy people. And we need to be incredibly careful. And we always have been until the wartime effort, as I call it, with COVID-19. And we've done well. Wuhan was a shocking virus at a very high death rate. Alpha and beta and delta were pretty severe as well, although less severe. And now we have Omicron, which is, again, with many iterations over 18 months now, where it's constantly mutated to less severity. I don't think you can get any more infectious, and I wouldn't know how you measure that anymore. It's the uh, percentages are just getting too small to measure now. We know it's highly infectious. Uh, We know it has an R number of around about six. So that's very infectious if you compare it to measles, which has an R number of about 16, just for comparison, and influenza about 1.5. Mm-hmm. So just to put it into perspective, David. So I think that's where we're at with WHO. I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's uh, where I think we're at. Some people might say, well, you know, uh, back to the future, because um, a number of people were thinking that some while back, uh, you know, that uh, vaccines well, stop having the vaccines because it really isn't uh, that bad. And they were saying that some months ago. And it seems as if SAGE is definitely making uh, drawing a line in the sand. Yeah, and I think to add to that, that's quite right. Uh, many people were saying that. But just remember, the vaccines were far more important when we had alpha, beta, delta mm. around. Uh, they were pretty serious, you know, pretty serious viruses for people 
who had several issues or potentially over 65 with immunosenescence and no issues. And and it was also important as we sort of did it on the run a bit, I think, as a community, but it worked, uh, of vaccinating pregnant women. Uh, you know, very, very important. Uh, and uh, many, 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 many lives were saved mm -hmm. with that vaccination program. But now it's a different picture. Now yep. in 2023, we need to think a bit differently and move forward. And I think we have. The other area that's been announced by some companies and also WHO and encouraged by WHO and regulators is the appearance of bivalent vaccines. Now, I, uh, if I can talk about that just briefly, yes. uh, there are a number in development uh, and a number of combined influenza and COVID vaccines in development. And the hope is that we'll be able to have a combined influenza COVID rather than giving it concomitantly one in each arm. And also there's some companies working on a combined uh, COVID influenza and RSV vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, some of those companies using protein, and I'll mention Novavax, uh, who are doing that, and some like Moderna, uh, Moderna and uh, Pfizer are using little pieces of mRNA uh, and combining them together. So there are several studies underway, uh, and it will be interesting to see what the results are. But my only concern is for safety. I think it will give immunogenicity. I think it will give protection. Uh, I think that's almost guaranteed from what we see with the mRNA work done to date. The protein we know is um, <clears throat> uh, much safer in terms of side effects. It doesn't have the number of issues, of cardiac issues, for example, or fatigue issues or GI issues that these other vaccines have. Uh, and um, uh, we'll just see again what the data holds there. The other thing that the protein manufacturers can do is they can take a matrix, like a um, it's a little matrix thing, and they can festoon little proteins on it. Uh, and so they can put several proteins on that, which will give a better immune response. But again, this is in phase two, three kind of programs. Mm -hmm. So Novavax is now conducting one in Australia, a phase three program, and they will be uh, targeting subvariants, monovalent and bivalent, in adults, uh, that have been previously vaccinated with mRNA. So that'll be interesting data to see. Mm. And, of course, Moderna and Pfizer are running studies as well, as well as other companies. It's not only them around the world, uh, but some uh, studies from them are in phase one, two, or three. Uh, and, of course, there's a registration now with, uh, for Pfizer uh, and Moderna, I believe. So they are now available as bivalence. But there's a problem. It's called imprinting, original antigenic sin. And as a reminder, just because you put two viruses in there, and many of them have chosen the original Wuhan strain, why, I don't know, it's disappeared. I have no idea why you want to put that in, but that's another matter. And uh, some are targeting two Omicrons, mm -hmm. but mostly they're targeting one Omicron, say uh, XBB uh, or, or maybe BA5, uh, together with either Delta, Alpha or Beta a previous strain. But the problem often, as we find with vaccines, is when you start combining antigens, that you get imprinting. So you get a very nice boost to your original strain, whether it's Wuhan, Alpha or Beta or, or Delta, uh, and you um, don't get such a great response to Omicron, or it's the same as a monovalent. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see this. So let's not get too excited about these bivalents uh, because I'm not sure that they do much better 
in terms of efficacy. And I think once real world data comes out, I doubt they'll do better at all. And that's my personal expectation from what, how I'm reading the data at the moment. So while I think it's an interesting step forward and we need new generation vaccines, personally, I'd rather see the emphasis on protein vaccines because of safety and also uh, on vaccines that will stop transmission from person to person. Yeah. That's where we should put our effort. That's what vaccines traditionally do, measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera, et cetera. All our vaccines stop transmission from person to person and stop um, even asymptomatic disease in many, many cases. So we, we need a vaccine like that. These vaccines are important for those that are vulnerable and nobody else. Gary, I'm trying to hear between what you're saying and I, I'm hearing the fact that we are out of the emergency situation that we once were in. We did not know very much. We had not much antivirals and many drugs were approved for use in an emergency situation. Now, now that we've come off it, the drugs that were approved for emergency use, are, are they now still, if you like, categorized for emergency use only? Or is there enough evidence now for us to actually take it out of the emergency use and put it into general use? No, well, that's up to the TGA and they're reviewing it now, I believe. So the companies have had to reapply for registration. Mm. I'm not sure where that is at at the moment, to be honest, but they've had to reapply because they only had registration for emergency use for two years while data was being collected. I would expect them to get full registration based on the data, uh, but I, I just don't know. They may be required now to provide extra safety data. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, um, as you know, I used to work for TGA and headed up immunobiology. That would definitely have been my advice if I was still there, is to get the best possible safety data that one could from around the world to re-register these vaccines uh, fully. They may still give them a temporary registration for another year or two, or they may decide uh, that they're only for particular groups, like those over 65 and those with underlying conditions, although that normally isn't a target decision. So TGA just registers a vaccine, a target decides basically on where it is to be used. PBAC, as you know, decides um, which vaccines get financial support and political support from government and so on. Yes, I think we now have enough, um, if you like, um, evidence to make a good call, uh, especially as you keep telling us there are a particular group that are vulnerable in the younger, healthy people. Um, it could be that the adverse reactions may actually outweigh the benefits. So so I'm, I'm looking forward to what Ataji will be saying about this or TGA will be saying about this. Uh, the Ataji advice is actually quite lengthy for various groups. Uh, it's worth a read, but I, I summarised it recently in an article for HealthEd, in fact, and it shows quite clearly for boosters that for under fives at risk or under fives with no risk factors, it's not recommended. Five to 17s uh, who are at risk, it should be considered, but it's only recommended for at-risk people over the age of 18. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, for people with no risk factors, it's not recommended from five uh, through to 64, although people can consider it, it is recommended for those over 65 because of immunosenescence. So, and there are some other special groups, as we know, and they're very important special groups in mm. institutions, uh, people that are disabled, uh, First Nations and so on are very important. And, uh, and I believe the recommendation is if you're over 50, 
for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, age 50 or older, they should probably get the vaccine for other reasons. So this is, you know, all important information, but very detailed. But I think I summarised it in a few hundred words for you for the Health Ed article. Thank you so much. And I'll hope to point the listeners to your article, Gary. I have another question. It has to do, and you keep mentioning the word transmission. You did mention to me that you had a particular concern that um, one of the tests that we use commonly may actually contribute to a problem, and I refer to the RET. What was your thinking and concern behind it, Gary? Well, my concern is that there are really four elements to a RAT test. The first is its sensitivity. And while it is approved by the TGA and it's supposed to have at least 85% sensitivity, in the real world, it ends up being less than 30%. Mm-hmm. That's my first issue with uh, the uh, testing. And it's because people do it at the wrong time or don't do it properly. And that brings me to the second point, which is the user. This is done by the user at home. Um, now, it can be done poorly or it can be done well. Um, it is fairly simple to do, but I mean, it's easy for me. I've got a ton of laboratory experience, but uh, other people will muck it up or not do it properly, or they might not even read it properly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, this then means that uh, people potentially can go out into the community when they're positive. Thirdly, there's the issue of reporting. We do not collect the data. Uh, It's crazy. We're doing this test and not collecting the data. And if you're not reporting it, like we do with uh, PCR, if you're not reporting it, then it brings me to my fourth point, responsibility, individual responsibility. So sensitivity, uh, the fact that the, the user, him or herself, the aspect of reporting, and then finally responsibility. Well, if you end up with a positive test, uh, unfortunately, okay, but you're feeling okay, because you will with Omicron, and you think, oh, I'm an electrician or a plumber or uh, I'm a nurse or whatever I do, I'll go to work anyway because I'm feeling fine and I'll just wear a mask uh, on the train. Uh, that would be responsible, but a lot of people won't. But then they go to work and, of course, you forget about the mask and the virus is happily being transmitted from person to person. So I think rats, in a way, help uh, the transmission of the virus throughout the community and I it, because people don't do the last thing. They don't take full responsibility uh, because nobody cares about Omicron anymore. It's not an emergency situation anymore. It's almost a common cold for most people. Symptoms are mild for the healthy in general. Uh, So why would you? Because economic pressures are such, just to broaden the discussion, that people will want to go to work. They don't want to miss a day, and particularly for a contractor, and you get paid by the day and you don't get sick leave. Um, You'll want to go and do that job. Uh, And when you've finished it, you uh, send your invoice. So these are the kinds of pressures that are now coming on things like rat tests And I have a a strong suspicion, uh, uh, eventually coming to a firm belief, that uh, these rat tests are inadvertently helping spread virus through the community. We do have a rat test for flu now, which I think is useful. Uh, And uh, I believe there's a combined one coming, if it's not already here, for flu and COVID. And that's uh, more useful. If you know you've got flu, there's one thing you can do. You can call your doctor and get a script for Tamiflu. Um, And uh, flu... in Influenza this year will be a lot more serious than COVID. It will put people to bed for two weeks, as we know. Uh, influenza can be very serious, and we should never, ever underestimate it. But we do have Tamiflu and other treatments. Uh, but taking Tamiflu will reduce the length of symptoms by definitely quite a few days, five to seven days. 
Yes, I, I am concerned about the flu because I think we're hearing that in China, um, the flu has been particularly nasty. Well, it's not only nasty, there's also bird flu flying around again, so to speak. The, you know, we've seen H5 again in, the, in quite a lot of poultry. We've seen it in humans. Uh, we're seeing uh, more bird flu around now for various reasons. Um, we've been monitoring that for a long time. Um, veterinary virologists and others have, have been doing that for a long time. And H5N1 is always a particular concern, not because it can jump to humans easily, it can't, it will cause very, very few deaths. The problem is recombination. If it reassorts with another human flu, or if it reassorts, which is more likely with a, a influenza from pigs, and then goes to humans, or even horses, and then goes to humans, then we could have another potential pandemic. And I don't want to put fear out there in the community. Mm -hmm. Flu is just something we need to watch and be incredibly aware of. And all the surveillance that's going on and all the research development on antivirals and vaccines that's going on all the time behind the scenes on influenza needs to keep going forward. It's very, very important. And I would hate to see the ball dropped on flu for the sake of COVID at this stage. Okay. Very, very important that the influenza work, especially surveillance and all the research work just keeps going forward because another flu pandemic will come, David. There's absolutely no question. Another topic for another day, you know, it's like how much have we learned and how ready are we for it? But that's a different question. Gary, I would like to finally go back to a topic you did bring up, and that's about the raccoon dog versus the lab leak theory um, of the origins of COVID. Whilst it's good to hear new things happening, and I will just say this, um, out in the community, it already has polarised the community. So those who believe one will believe one and the ones who believe the other will always believe the other. And each will tell say to the other that it's a conspiracy. I, I guess as a doctor, I, would, I have some critical questions, or at least I'm asking you to teach us if there are critical questions we need to ask whenever we hear something to allow us to assess the, the truth or the authenticity of what we're hearing. Yeah, sadly, David, I think there are a lot of uh, very well-educated physicians out there and scientists who um, like the camera too much. I'm thinking of a few people who almost have a Hillsong-style evangelical approach, which appeals to those who are prone, I guess, to conspiracy theories. And I think there is a large group of people that are prone to conspiracy theories and that kind of gossip. Whereas uh, scientists and medical people tend to deal with facts. And if you don't have the facts, then you don't make a pronouncement. But unfortunately, many people are making pronouncements uh, of all sorts. And they make them with a lot of authority because they do have expertise in their own right. So I'm thinking of cardiologists to start talking about infectious diseases, for example. Mm -hmm. um, very important people, but it would be as silly as an infectious diseases person pronouncing all sorts of things about cardiology. Okay. Um, you know, we, so we do have a large group of well-educated, trusted people out there who are making all sorts of pronouncements. So it's very, very important as a, as a scientist or medical person to take away your own bias, mm -hmm. first thing. Uh, and it's, it's challenging, but you have to remove any biases you have to give the best advice you can to those that are asking for it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to... Um, uh, some of the pronouncements out there. We saw much ado about nothing when it came to hydrochloroquine. We saw much ado about nothing when it came to ivermectin, now completely debunked, for example. Uh, there were other uh, wonderful things about that too. Uh, 
other um, systems or alternative systems that were also debunked now. It took a while, but we finally got there. But it got a lot of traction from a lot of people, from uh, media personalities through to film stars, through to doctors and nurses and all sorts of people talking about it, that a large group of our social community through social media started to believe in it. Mm -hmm. And that's really unfortunate because they don't actually deal with the facts. When we came to the lab leak theory, that was another one. Yes, all this anecdotal information was brought forward about a lab leak and on it went and on it went and on it went. But virologists know if you're dealing with a, a facility like they have in Wuhan, which we happen to know well as virologists, we send our students there, we've been there, we've looked at it, we, we know it's uh, high tech, um, unbelievably well controlled. The probability of something escaping from that, almost zero. Were they doing gain-of-function studies? Yes. Were they doing coronaviruses in bats? Yes. Were they dealing with other coronaviruses? Yes. Most labs are. You know, labs around the world are doing the same thing, although gain-of-function is not permitted in certain countries like the US. So, yes, they were doing all that, but it's most likely that we know it's a bat virus. That's where it originated. We know it went to another animal. We know it's easily transmitted as it is now to hamsters and cats and rats and mice, uh, monkeys. Um, we know from the genetic databases, which are extensive, out of 14 million genes reported in various databases, clearly show the raccoon dog genes, clearly show civet cats, clearly show other animal genes. Something has happened between the bat and the human, which is often the case. It goes from its original source to another animal and then to human. And we know we have a link in terms of uh, going from wet markets to a human being. This is almost certainly the way it happened. I can tell you, prior to the pandemic, in the first half of 2019, there was a huge increase in so-called flu cases, although never investigated, almost certainly coronavirus. In late summer uh, or the fall of 2019 in China, so it's September for us, we see satellite imagery of hospitals just being inundated, right? Then we see in November, October, November, December, all sorts of things happened in terms of uh, the World Military Games there in China, people coming down with it. Finally, it got recognised in November 17, a 55-year-old person in Hubei comes down with a serious uh, presumptive flu, ended up being COVID-19, a new virus. Somebody finally investigated it. And then more patients were found and more patients. And then we realised we had a pandemic at the end of 2019. Mm. And it started to spread in 2020 and around it went. We had evidence for over a year with this virus. It wasn't a lab leak that suddenly happened in October or something. And we've got animal traces from some of those previous samples. And yes, China can be criticised for um, uh, not providing all the data and providing 100% access to information and so on and so forth. But you have to set all that aside. This is almost certainly, nobody can talk about 100%, but almost certainly going from a bat to an animal to human, because that's the way pandemics occur. That's the way they occur. And then for a short while, like a year, exactly what happened in 2019 in China, these viruses circulate until they gain traction in the human population, because they need to adapt themselves there to get the right receptor sites so that can infect humans. And then they go human to human. It takes time. Every pandemic works the same way. One could say, look, that's also a very good theory. Um, I have a question. 
what would constitute a smoking gun, uh, the smoking gun, if you like? Uh, for example, um, would, say, if it came from, uh, say, the raccoon dogs, could uh, random samples of wild raccoon dogs in the, in the countryside if to see if they've kept been carrying around various, if you like, um, uh, antibodies to the virus, which tells us that it's been definitely circulating in them for a while, and clearly they are the source. What, what could be a smoking gun uh, for the animal transmission, the zoonotic transmission, and what could be a smoking gun for, say, the lab leak? So, as as a listener, I need to we need to be able to ask the speaker some important questions about that critical thing that we still don't have, but what is that critical thing that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, nice question. So the smoking gun in in terms of the markets uh, spillover, yes, you could look at antibodies in animals, which they've done and they've found them. Yes, you could take samples from animals, which they've done and they've found sales. But the better smoking gun is genetics. Mm-hmm. Our genetic databases show genes from these animals. So it's not only bat, I know I've got raccoon dogs, a number of other animals as well. So it seems quite clear with the genetic evidence alone, let alone what's going on in animals, that raccoon dog is one of the intermediates and there might be others. So there's always an intermediate. It's very rare that it would go from a bat to human. The lab leak theory, uh, the smoking gun there would be a telltale sign again from a genetic point of view of a construct that you've made in the lab and you've put in that gene or a significant deletion in some way. Genetics tells you a tremendous amount. Mm. And I haven't found that smoking gun. Everybody's been looking for it in various databases. I haven't found it. Mm. Um, So I'm I'm not sure, but you can't eliminate it. You Mm. can't eliminate it. But at the moment, you would have to say your null hypothesis would have to be what normally happens, a spillover. And you have to go for that rather than getting too sidetracked until the evidence actually arises that this virus has been constructed by humans and you would see telltale signs uh, genetically. Gary, to con- conclude what you've been telling us, because there's been so much information, today I've just been going to walk away having a more critical mind or a, a mind that's thinking more critically about various issues. The first is to understand clearly what the various recommendations are for uh, immunization boosters. The second is to question uh, whether uh, the new generation of vaccines coming out, uh, just because it's bivalent or or, um, mRNA with multiple viruses in it, is it necessarily a good or bad thing? We don't know. Or is it working? I have no idea. Does it have side effects? I think you've put those questions in my mind to ask. The third thing uh, that you got us thinking about is um, it's about depending too much on tests that we do at home and whether it's actually harmful or helpful. And and the, the last thing you left us with is to really go back to the basics, which is now using uh, a genetic uh, lens to look at the origins of the SARS virus rather than uh, various pronouncements from people without firm genetic evidence. Is that a fair summary? No, that's a fair summary, David. And I, I couldn't help uh, thinking we must keep emphasising facts. You know, as a medical community, you have to keep dealing with the facts and emphasising the facts rather than the sideshow. 
there's a tremendous sideshow here through social media and various organisations, which is a pity. I have full respect for people that, you know, want to uh, talk about this and provide certain evidence, but the problem is they cherry pick and they uh, don't provide all the evidence. People ask me, why haven't I got up there on TV and done the same thing? It's because I don't have all the evidence. You know, mm -hmm. I think once we get all the evidence, forget the TV, let's put it in the Lancet or let's put it in the New England Journal and write something decent or put it in the Medical Journal of Australia so we can all read it. At the moment, we've just got a lot of opinion and from some very good, fine, moral people, but it isn't the whole story. Mm -hmm. And I encourage your listeners to wait for the whole story Stick with WHO advice and the advice from the Centers for Disease Control in the US, which are both those organizations seem to me to give the best advice. And I would keep looking to that kind of advice rather than anything else. The Australian government advice in its various form is also good when it relies on those authorities. The good thing about the WHO advice, the SAGE group and the others, is uh, its broad group of experts, which includes virologists, immunologists, epidemiologists, and so on, uh, people with a lot of experience who have seen many pandemics before, although nobody's seen a coronavirus one before, but we can apply the principles and also we apply the principles of virology. We know how viruses work. We know how pandemics work. We don't need to panic about it like we have. Unfortunately, it became very politicized and then became quite distorted in social media circles. You know, it's really disappointing, but perhaps not surprising in this age. But we do have genetics, and uh, that's going to give us a lot of facts and people, you know, more data is being uploaded all the time. We do need honesty from all governments, including China, as to what's going on so yeah. we can make proper decisions. Uh, we certainly need that. Uh, but what we don't need is panic. Vaccines are available. They're available to everyone uh, if you wish to take them, but they're not recommended for everyone. Let's stick to the people with the burden of disease, protect those that are pregnant, um, and protect the special groups, people with underlying illness, etc. cetera. Uh, so let's do that. Yeah. And just um, watch it this year. I, if anything, I would encourage everyone to make sure their patients got influenza vaccine. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's uh, the one to watch, and I think that's the vaccine to promote. That sounds just fantastic, except you just, in your last bit, left another question in my mind which is that um you said that uh, you know we listened to the australian government's advice depending on whom they got the advice from and unfortunately we had been taught through the pandemic to think local go to local um sources particularly governmental ones but we have no idea which particular bits of information came from which groups and therefore we end up again with confusion but i really thank you gary for actually saying look why don't you guys just go straight to CDC, look at WHO and see what they're saying? Is that a fair summary? No, sure. And I don't mean to put any, any other organisation down, but um, the best source of information is in general, although it's sometimes a little bit late, but the best source of information really is WHO, in my experience, and CDC, in my experience. Yeah. I, they're the people that really try to get the messages out uh, that are accurate and the CDC tries to get it out very, very quickly. And that's where I, I personally always start there. In fact, I start there every morning. Once again, Gary, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. It's wonderful. Okay, I look forward to another one in the future, David. Thank you again. 
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.